Well, if you have your Bibles again, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of 2 Thessalonians. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1260. If you're a guest with us, we've been studying through the book of 2 Thessalonians. We're right in the middle of chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in verse number 6 this morning. And I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject today, the man of lawlessness. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. I'll encourage you to keep your Bibles open in front of you as I point many things out to you in the text this morning as we study together. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. And this is what the Bible says. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Paul is teaching us that a day is coming when a lawless rebellion and a satanic false religion will dominate the world like no other time in history. Its object of worship will be the most powerful, evil, deceitful person to ever live. The man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, the Antichrist. His arrival and coming will be the culmination of Satan's long war against God that traces all the way back to the book of Genesis. And like his evil master, Antichrist will disguise himself as an angel of light and he will deceive the nations. Paul is writing to this young, newly formed church about the Antichrist in this section. And he refers to him in this passage as the man of lawlessness. And he is writing about this subject because the Thessalonians had been deceived by the lie that the second coming of Christ had already taken place and they were now living in the day of Christ's judgment. And so seeking to correct their error, Paul called on them to remember what he had previously taught them, reassuring them that the day of the Lord had not yet come. His argument was simple and irrefutable. The Antichrist has not yet appeared, and he must appear before the Lord Jesus Christ returns to judge the world. 
Now, you need to remember this morning as we study this passage of Scripture together, what I reminded you of last week when we looked at the first five verses of this chapter. The Apostle Paul is not writing to give you a timetable of future events so you can fill in your prophetic calendar and match it with the events of the news and the world. He is writing this passage as a pastor. From a pastor's heart to a struggling and confused church. And he's writing to comfort them and he is writing to correct them. And in this passage, Paul reminds the Thessalonians and he teaches you and I four truths surrounding the man of lawlessness. The first truth he gives us is found in verses 6 and 7 where he describes the delay of the man of lawlessness. Look at what he writes. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Notice how he begins verse 6. He begins it in the ESV with the phrase, and you know. And that phrase indicates to us that the Thessalonian church understood what Paul was referring to in these verses when he described the restraining of the Antichrist. The Thessalonians knew what Paul was referring to because when Paul was physically present with them, he taught them about this restraining work. And so in verses 6 and 7, Paul is reminding the Thessalonians that the man of lawlessness is currently being restrained. And if you look carefully at the text, Paul says, and he will continue to be restrained until the appointed time of his revealing. Now, I'll be Right up front with you, verses 6 and 7 are some of the most difficult verses to properly interpret in the book of 2 Thessalonians. And there are all kinds of opinions and thoughts about what Paul is talking about in these verses and who he is referring to as the restrainer. If you have your Bibles open, I want to point out two things in particular that help you understand what he is talking about. In verse 6, Paul referred to the restrainer in neuter gender language using the word what. So you should see the word what if you're using the ESV in verse number 6. And with that word in that type of language in verse 6, Paul is emphasizing that some thing or force is restraining the man of lawlessness. Some force is restraining the man of lawlessness. But if you look carefully in verse number 7, Paul employs masculine gender language with the use of the word he. And with that language, Paul is emphasizing that the restrainer is a person. And so he's emphasizing the restrainer is a force and the restrainer is a person. And the implication is that this restrainer has to be someone 
who has the ability to exercise supernatural force to overcome and restrain the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. Now, there have been all kinds of interpretations and speculations about who this restrainer is. Some believe that the preaching of the gospel throughout the world keeps the Antichrist in check. And eventually, when the gospel has been proclaimed to every nation, the restraint will be removed. I don't think that's the right interpretation. Others suggest that the restrainer is the nation Israel. I don't think that's correct. Others suggest that it is the binding of Satan by believers. I certainly don't think that is correct. Others say it is the church's influence as salt and light in the world. Again, I think that's wrong. Others say it's a human government. Seriously? Others say it's a general principle of law and morality. Some even go so far as to say it's the archangel Michael who is restraining. G.K. Beale, who is a whole lot smarter than I am, says it is clear that God is the ultimate power behind this agent. This is explicit from the observation that the restrainer will restrain until the revelation of the Antichrist at the proper time. And this time is certainly set by God since this whole passage is placed within a prophecy fulfillment framework. God is the one who will bring history to a conclusion in his own timing. End quote. And I think he's right. Who is the restrainer? I think the restrainer is the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. You say, why do you come to that conclusion, Pastor? Well, the Holy Spirit takes into account Paul's reference to the restrainer as being both a force and a person. The Holy Spirit is a force and he is a person and only the Holy Spirit of God could fit the description that the Apostle Paul is giving in these two verses because only the Holy Spirit of God has the power and the force and the ability to keep Satan and his minion the Antichrist at bay and this interpretation is backed by other portions of Scripture. The Holy Spirit, since the very first book in our Bible, has battled wickedness in the world. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3, the Bible says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. Some translations say, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. And that verse is given in the context of God bringing judgment on the world through a global, worldwide flood. If you're not convinced with that reference, how about what Jesus taught about the Holy Spirit and His work in the world even today as we sit in this room? In John chapter 16 and verse 8, Jesus said, And when He comes, referring to the Holy Spirit, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He restrains the forces of evil in the world. 
This restrainer is none other than the Holy Spirit of God. And the result of this restraining of the man of lawlessness, if you'll look in verse 6, is that for the moment that lawlessness operates as a mystery or a secret power. Do I need to remind you this morning that lawlessness is already at work in our world? John wrote about this in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, and he said that the very act of sin itself is lawlessness. And lawlessness is active, and it's at work in the world this very moment. It is a mystery. It is held in secret. The Holy Spirit is keeping lawlessness from openly flourishing. It is bubbling beneath the very surface of the world that we live in, and it's awaiting that moment when God removes the restraining force of the Holy Spirit, and lawlessness will erupt and explode all throughout the world. It's already at work in us. You say, how do you know that's true? Well, listen to how John Stott describes the lawlessness already at work below the surface. He says it's anti-social, anti-law, anti-God movement is at present largely underground. We detect its subversive influence around us today in the atheistic stance of secular humanism in the totalitarian tendencies of extreme left-wing and right-wing ideologies, in the materialism of consumer society which puts things in the place of God, in the so-called theologies which proclaim the death of God and the end of moral absolutes, and in the social permissiveness which cheapens the sanctity of human life, it cheapens sex, it cheapens marriage, it cheapens family, and all of these things are created by God and instituted by God, end quote. Lawlessness, friends, is already at work all around us. And Paul says that when the restraint is removed, the mystery of lawlessness will become open rebellion under the leadership of the lawless one when he is revealed. And he, listen carefully, will usher in, in that moment, the darkest period of political, social, moral, and religious chaos that the world has ever seen. Now look in your Bibles and notice carefully that the consummation of this evil will occur at God's appointed time, as Paul says, when this restrainer is taken out of the way. The phrase out of the way, it literally means to move to one side. You could think about it like this. It's like the walls of a dam that are opened and no longer hold back the waters of a lake or a river. They're moved to the side and a torrent of water is unleashed to flood and destroy everything in its path. That's the picture that Paul is painting here of the Holy Spirit no longer restraining evil and the Antichrist coming on the scene. And you say, does that mean that the Holy Spirit is taken out of the world? And the answer to that is no. The Holy Spirit is God. How can God be taken out of the world? It's impossible theologically. No, it means that the restraining hand and work of the Holy Spirit is lessened and removed and evil is allowed to run with free reign over the earth. 
And you say to me this morning, Pastor, this world is already full of evil. And I say to you in response this morning, you're right. Can you just imagine what it'll be like when the Holy Spirit stops restraining it? You think it's bad now? You haven't seen anything of what is to come. Well, Paul not only describes the delay of the man of lawlessness, he describes the destruction of the man of lawlessness in verse number 8. Paul writes, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And this is the third time in this chapter that Paul has said that the man of lawlessness will be revealed. He mentioned it in verse 3, he mentioned it in verse 6, and now he mentions it in verse 8. And that word reveal means literally uncovering in a moment of time. It means it's going to happen that fast. In a moment of time, in the twinkling of an eye, if you will, this person of evil will be revealed. He'll be known and seen for what he actually is, the agent of Satan. And notice in verse 8 that just as the Antichrist will be revealed at God's appointed time, so also is the moment of his destruction divinely ordained. And Paul is teaching that at the height of the power of the Antichrist, when he seems totally invincible, the Lord Jesus Christ will come on the scene and deal with him. And notice what Paul does in verse 8. Rather than go into any detail about what happens when the lawless one is revealed, Paul moves immediately to his destruction. And he's teaching us with the language that he uses in verse number 8 that there will be a violent and decisive confrontation with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this confrontation between Christ and the Antichrist is given in detail in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 21. But for the sake of time this morning, I'm going to give you the summary verse in the passage. Revelation 19 and verse 20. And this is what the Bible says will happen when Jesus confronts the Antichrist. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped its image. And these two, listen to the language of the text, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Hell. They were thrown and cast into hell where they will burn alive forever. That is the fate of the Antichrist. Paul uses the phrase bring to nothing in verse 8. It literally means to render inoperative, to render ineffective, to abolish. It does not mean annihilation. As I've just shown you in Revelation 19 and verse 20, the Antichrist will be very much alive for all eternity living in flames. The Bible is clear on that. What Jesus will do when he comes is banish him to that eternal judgment and render him completely and utterly powerless. And notice how he will do this. It is fascinating. He will kill the man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth 
and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. He's going to render him inoperative in two ways, Paul says, with the breath of his mouth. This figure of speech is used in the Old Testament to, to describe God's creative action, and it's also used in the Old Testament to describe God's wrath. When you come to the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is pictured as the conquering Lord and King who comes with a sword coming out of his mouth. And this is how he will defeat and destroy the Antichrist with the word of his power. But not only that, Paul says in verse number 8 that the very appearance of Jesus will render the Antichrist powerless. He says that the appearance of his coming, it literally could be translated the brightness or the splendor of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus is going to be so glorious, so bright, so grand that when he appears, the Antichrist will not be able to stand in his presence. He will be immediately removed because Christ is so glorious. That's why the Bible says that Jesus is beautiful. He's altogether lovely. And his holiness and his power and his glory and his splendor and his majesty in one moment will defeat the false Christ. Well, Paul not only describes the delay of the man of lawlessness and the destruction of the man of lawlessness, he also describes in verses 9 and 10 the deception of the man of lawlessness. Now, I'm building something with this sermon, okay? It's, it's one block on top of another on top of another. And these last two points that I'm going to give you are so, so crucial and important. Every single person in this room this morning, every single person watching on live stream needs to have a Bible open and needs to look carefully at what I'm going to show you from the text. You need to hear and be reminded what Paul is showing us. And so in verses 9 and 10, the deception of the man of lawlessness, look carefully at what Paul writes. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Now in these verses, Paul reminded the Thessalonians that Satan will deceive people at the end of time with a blasphemous substitute for Jesus, this man of lawlessness, this antichrist. And like the Lord Jesus, the man of lawlessness is said in verse 9, to have a coming, to have a parousia. It's the same language that is used to describe Jesus' coming. But you'll notice the difference. Jesus will come in the glory of his Father, but in verse number 9, the Antichrist will appear as a result of the activity and the power of Satan. 
And according to Paul, the coming of the lawless one will be a counterfeit of the second coming of Christ. And like Christ's return, the Antichrist coming will be personal, it'll be visible, and it'll be powerful. He will come with all of the power of Satan, and he will come, as verse 9 says, with false signs and wonders and all wicked deception. And just as Jesus' earthly ministry was authenticated with signs and wonders and miracles, the Antichrist work on the earth will be given signs and wonders to show who he is. And you say, well, what, what will that look like? How can we understand that? Well, the Bible has already shown us a picture of this in Moses' interactions with Pharaoh. Do you remember when Moses appeared before Pharaoh and God had him do signs and wonders? Pharaoh's Egyptians, for a time, were able to match the very signs and wonders that God did through Moses. But in the end... They were all false and they fell short of the real thing. And that's exactly what will happen with the Antichrist. The purpose of Christ's miracles, the purpose of his signs and his wonders were to lead people to the truth. The purpose of the signs and the wonders of the Antichrist will be to lead people to believe his lies and his deception. Notice how Paul described his signs and wonders. Do you see the word in the text? The word false. It's not that the signs and wonders will be fake. I believe there'll be real activity. They'll be false in the sense that they'll deceive. They'll be false, false in the sense that they will lead people astray. They will lead people to believe the Antichrist lies. And ultimately, they will lead people to worship him. And give him the honor that should only be given to Jesus. And you say to me this morning, Pastor, are you serious? Are you making this up? Could something like this really happen? And I say to you this morning, listen to how the Bible describes how this will take place. In Revelation chapter 13 and verse 4, this, listen, listen to me. This is God's commentary on what's going to happen through these false signs and wonders. And in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 4, the Bible says, And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against the beast? And friends, in that moment when they cry out in worship, who is like the beast, that will be the climax of blasphemous apostasy worship. And they will cry out, who can fight against the beast? And I've already shown you who can fight against the beast. All he has to do is appear, and the battle is over. And they will be deceived. And look in verse 10, how they'll be deceived. The whole unbelieving world will be misled with all wicked deception he won't just deceive them he will wickedly wickedly deceive them and it will all be accomplished 
by the power of Satan. Now you have your Bible open. I want you to look in verse 10 carefully with me. And I want you to notice the ultimate reason that the lost world will be deceived by the Antichrist. Do you see it? Because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Pastor, how could he deceive the nations? How could he deceive the world? Because the world refused to love the truth and be saved. The phrase refused to love the truth literally translates did not receive the love of the truth. They did not receive the love of the truth. And what is the truth that he is talking about here? It is the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the message that he proclaimed. And it is the truth of Jesus himself because Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the truth. They refused to love Jesus, and they refused to love his message. It's that simple. Why do they follow the Antichrist? Why are they deceived? They refuse to love the truth. They refuse to love Jesus. The language that Paul uses here is the language of welcoming. The Thessalonians welcomed the message of Jesus. They welcomed Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and 3, verse 13, Paul said, And we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. Paul went to Thessalonica. He preached the truth of Jesus Christ. The Thessalonians heard the truth of Jesus Christ that Paul proclaimed. And they welcomed it into their hearts and into their minds and into their lives. They loved the truth and therefore they loved Jesus. They welcomed him. But the unbelieving world will reject him. And notice what he says in verse 10, that all of those who will be deceived will perish. And they'll perish because they will have had the truth presented to them. And they will have had the opportunity of responding to Jesus and his gospel. And they will have refused to welcome the truth and to welcome Jesus into their lives. And they will have had an opportunity to respond to salvation that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And they will reject it and they will refuse to love it. And Paul says they will not receive the truth because they do not love the truth. It, listen, listen to me. This is where our world is this morning. This is where some of you are in this very room. Some of you watching on live stream, what Paul is talking about, he is describing you. It's not that you don't understand the truth. It's not that it's not logical to you. It's not that it doesn't make sense. 
It's that you refuse to respond to it. You refuse to love it. You refuse to welcome it. You would rather keep on in the same direction that you are keeping on than to receive and love the truth and to receive and love Jesus Christ. Because you know if you receive and love the truth and receive and love Jesus Christ, things have to change in your life. And you'd rather reject it and keep going in the direction you're going, thinking you know better than to receive it and to love it. And do you know what Paul says that you're ultimately doing in your life? You are opening your life wide open for deception. To be deceived. And there will be untold numbers of people who will be deceived by the devil and his lies. Who will refuse to love the truth, refuse to love Jesus, and will perish. And I want you to notice one other thing in particular in this text this morning. Where is the responsibility for not believing the truth and loving the truth placed? Is it placed on the Antichrist? No. Is it placed on Satan? No. Is it placed on God? No. It is placed on the people who refuse to love the truth. There is personal responsibility at stake here. And friends, the gospel message is simple. It's logical. It always begins with God. Regardless of what the world tells you, regardless of what your college or your university tells you, God created everything. He created you, and he created you in his own image. And because God is the creator, he has the right to do with his creation what he wants. He is the owner and maker of everything. You don't get to tell God what to do. God gets to tell you what to do. He created you. You create another person, and maybe you have the right to tell them what to do. Let me know when that happens. He created you. He's your ruler and authority. And when he created Adam and Eve, our first parents, because every single one of us in this room traces back to Adam and Eve and not a monkey. Just so we're clear. We all go back to them. And when he created Adam and Eve, he said to him, you can have all of the fruit in the garden except for the fruit from that tree. And the day that you take it, you'll die. And when he said you'll die, he meant you'll die spiritually and you'll die physically. And the Bible says that uh, Satan deceived and Eve took it and gave it to her husband and they both sinned. And in that moment, they began to die physically and they died spiritually. They were separated from God. God removed them from the garden, the perfect environment that he gave them to dwell in. And ever since that time, man has been separated from God by sin because Adam represented all of us. And when Adam sinned, every single one of us sinned with him. And what that means is that you're born in sin. Like, do you understand this morning? You don't have to do anything to be separated from God except be born and exist. 
The moment you're born, you're born a sinner. And your sin separates you from God. And you cannot get to God because of your sin. There, there, there is a vast expanse between you and God because of sin. Because sin cannot be in the presence of a holy God. And when you couldn't get to God because of your sin, God came to you through his son Jesus. And Jesus was born of a virgin without sin. And Jesus lived a perfect life that you try to live, but you can't live because of your sin. And Jesus, when he died on the cross, he died for your sin and for the sins of the whole world. In that moment when he was on the cross and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, God put upon his son on the cross the sins of the whole world. So just think about your life for a moment. Think about every sin that you've committed, every sin that you ever will commit, all of the guilt and the shame and the heartbreak and the sorrow that you carry around with you, all of that for the whole world in that moment was placed on Jesus. And he died for all of it so you wouldn't have to die. And then... When he died, he was put in a tomb. And three days later, he rose from the grave, signifying that he dealt with sin, he dealt with death, he dealt with Satan, and he's victorious. And he ascended to heaven, and he's at the right hand of the Father, and one day he's coming back, as I've already shown you this morning. That is the gospel. That is the truth. And Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's not many ways to heaven. There's one way, and it's Jesus Christ. And if you never recognize that you're a sinner, what I've just talked to you about, and you never recognize what God did for you through his Son, and you never turn away from your sin and say, God, I'm sorry for my sin. I don't want to live like that anymore. I want Christ and I want to be reconciled to you through your son. If you never believe in Jesus and what he did for you, you will perish. You will perish just like the text that I'm talking to you about this morning. And listen, I am taking no pleasure in telling you this this morning. But the gospel really is as simple as what I've just explained to you. It really is that simple. The question is whether you will love it. Whether you will receive it. Whether you will, in this very moment, as I'm speaking to you, Think about your life and get a real picture of what your life is like in your sin and get a real picture of Jesus and his love for you and what he's done for you on the cross by dying for you. And in this moment, you will open your eyes and you will say, I want Jesus. I love him because he first loved me. I want the truth because the truth will set me free. That's the question. Will you love Jesus? Will you love the truth? Well, Paul describes the delay of the man of lawlessness, the destruction of the man of lawlessness, and the deception of the man of lawlessness. And finally, 
he describes the delusion of the man of lawlessness in verses 11 and 12. Now keep your Bible open. I'm going to show you something else in the text that you have to see today. You say, well, why, why do you keep telling us to look at the Bible? Because I want the word of God to convince you, not me. You can argue with me all day. You cannot argue with God. You will lose. Verses 11 and 12. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, look at the very first word in verse 11. It's the word therefore, and you know the old saying, when you see the word therefore, you have to find out what it's there for. So what is the word therefore, therefore? Did you catch all that? All right. Well, he's referring back to verses 9 and 10 and the powerful signs and wonders that will deceive those who don't love the truth. And they'll believe that the Antichrist is the real thing, that he's God's representative. And they will be deceived and they'll believe a lie and they'll perish. But it connects verses 9 and 10 to verses 11 and 12. And it's not just that they'll perish because they refuse to love the truth. Look at verse 11. They will perish because God will send them a strong delusion. Now look at your Bible carefully. God sends them a strong delusion. Where is the activity? God. It means that God is in complete sovereign control of all of these events that Paul is describing, and he uses them for his own purposes. And here's what Paul is saying. Because these people have rejected the truth of God's Son, God abandons them to the deception of the man of lawlessness. Because they rejected Christ, because they refused to love the truth, because they refused to love Jesus, God sends them a delusion. It is a reminder to every single one of us this morning that God judges people for their unbelief by abandoning them to their unrestrained desires for sin. If they will not choose Christ, God will let them go their own way and will let them reap the full consequences of their sin. You say, I don't understand it. How could he do that? Well, in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, if you want a relevant commentary of the days in which we're living, go home today and read that passage. It is right on the mark of the days in which we're living. And in that passage, as God describes how people will make for themselves idols and will worship the creature rather than the creator, Paul says three different times that God will say to them that he will give them up to their evil, sinful desires. Romans chapter 1 and verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Romans chapter 1 and verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Romans chapter 1 and verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Three times, God gave them up. 
God gave them up. God gave them up. God sending a strong delusion. Let me be clear. In God sending a strong delusion, God is not the author of their sin. What he is doing is removing the strengths and he sends delusions in ways that make men and women more disposed to the sin that they love. It means that he allows them to fall and plunge more deeply into sin and to fall more quickly into deception. And as a result, God's judgment is upon them. But make no mistake, friends. These actions are their own. And their judgment is deserved. God gives them up to what they really want in the first place. And he removes all restraints. And when you read Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32, it's a progression. The passage describes the sin getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And this is what is happening in the world around us this morning as we speak. God is giving people up to what they want. Proverbs 5.22 describes exactly what happens to them. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare them and they are held fast in the cords of their sin. Here's the picture that Proverbs is describing. You're living your life and you're, you're pursuing your sin and you're getting deeper and deeper in your sin and, and you're moving along in it and all of a sudden your, your legs feel heavy and you look down and you see cords wrapped around you and as you keep walking in your sin the cords get tighter and tighter and tighter to the point where you're completely restricted and you're trapped And you can't break free because you're not strong enough. Oh, because by the way, if you were strong enough, you wouldn't have gotten in this predicament in the first place. You're trapped in the cords of your own sin. And God gives you up to the desires that you say you want. Listen carefully to these last couple statements that I'm going to make. If you prefer Satan's lies to the truth of God, you will find yourself becoming hardened, increasingly willing to embrace a way of life which flaunts itself in its ugliest forms, and you will be left wallowing in your sin, and your unrestrained lifestyle will take its ultimate toll on you. Now look at verse 12. You refuse to love the truth, and you refuse to believe the truth, Because you take greater pleasure in unrighteousness. You take pleasure in doing what is wicked. You take pleasure in doing what is evil. This is a description of a person who has turned their back on Christ. This is the description of a person who has rejected the truth and the light of God through his word. Friends, when you reject God, when you reject Christ, when you reject truth, there are consequences. 
Sin always brings consequences. And notice what verse 12 says. You'll ultimately be condemned forever. I cannot think of a more sober passage to teach and preach to you this morning than this one. I can't think of a more relevant passage for us to be studying this morning than this one with all that is happening in our world. Can you not see the downward spiral of life that Paul is describing? In case you missed it, I'm going to summarize it for you and close. You reject God's truth. You believe what is false. You're given over to the lie you have chosen. You take pleasure in unrighteousness. You are condemned and you perish. That's the progression. That is a life apart from Jesus Christ. Paul summarized what that life would ultimately be like in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's the delusion. Suffering punishment away from the glory of God. I have to ask you this morning, do you love the truth? Do you love Jesus? I know a lot of you love the truth. You wouldn't come and sit week after week and listen to long-winded sermons if you didn't love the truth and love Jesus. But we would all be foolish to think that every person in this room loves the truth and loves Jesus. We would be foolish to think that every person watching online loves the truth and loves Jesus. Friends, the gospel is that simple. Would you receive Jesus today? Would you believe in him? Would you trust in him? Would you turn from your sins? This is the last thing I'll say to you this morning, and then I'm going to pray. You hear the truth every week if you come to church. And Paul alluded to it. And, and you know what will happen to you? If you're not careful, you'll hear the truth every week. And you'll reject it. And the more you reject it, the harder you get. The harder you get on the inside to the truth. The less it affects you. The less it moves you. You just treat it as common. As ordinary. And when your heart starts to get hard, that's when you start down this road that he's talking about. A continual rejection and refusal of the truth and of Jesus. You've heard the truth today. Will you receive it? Will you believe it? What will you do with it? I'm going to pray for us. And as I pray, it's as simple as crying out to Jesus and telling him you're a sinner. You know you deserve to die for your sins. You believe Jesus died for you. You want to be saved. You want to be forgiven. You can ask him right there where you're seated. It's not a prayer that saves you. It's your crying out to God in desperation and dependence for his son that saves you.
Let's pray.